The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Another possibility, though, is that the D.C. Circuit takes a quick look at this and says, uh, presidential criminal immunity, are you joking? And uh, deals with it in a highly expedited proceeding, yielding a unanimous quick opinion that the Supreme Court relatively quickly denies cert in. And so I think, you know, how significant the question of a stay is with respect to the March 4th trial deadline is almost entirely a question of the timeline of the appeal about which the range can be, you know, in recent DC circuit practice, super, super fast, or as in blasting game, a year, right? And that's just at the DC circuit level in the Trump cases. And so I think a lot of people this week are gonna tell you they know what's happening in this case. And I'm gonna tell you, I don't, and neither do any of them. I'm Scott R. Anderson, Senior Editor for Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 9th, 2023. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, recorded on December 7th in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. Joining me in the virtual studio was Benjamin Wittes, Anna Bauer, and Roger Parloff, all colleagues of mine here at Lawfare. We discuss in a range of matters in Trump's Trials and Tribulations, ranging from Judge Chutkin's denial of Trump's motions to dismiss his D.C. criminal case, Trump's filing seeking to stay, the D.C. case in its entirety, the lack of movement in the D.C. circuit from its gag order, and where the various 14th Amendment Section 3 suits seeking to ban Trump from the 2024 ballot stand around the country. We also dug into updates from Fulton County and talked about what happened in particular at the six-hour hearing on December 1st has gotten surprisingly little attention. And of course, we closed out by taking audience questions from material supporters on Zoom. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 9th. Trump's trials and tribulations, Fulton County hearing, filings in D.C., and 14th Amendment updates. Ben, I want to start with you on some of the events of the week because we saw two big court decisions come down at the end of last week, I think both came after the last trials and tribulation session. Uh, you wrote a really useful piece on them with our colleague Quinta Jurassic, thinking about the relationship between the blasting game decision, a decision in the by the DC Circuit in the civil lawsuit, one of the civil lawsuits against former President Trump arising from the events of January 6th, and its relationship to the decision by Judge Chutkin in the January 6th decision regarding, among other items, and possible grounds to dismiss the case advanced by former President Trump the presidential immunity decision that's similar to the argument, but in a different context being made in that blast game decision. Tell us a little bit about these decisions, what stood out to you, how they relate to each other, and what they tell us about 
the January 6th case kind of moving forward, particularly the criminal case. And then I, I want to turn to the recent event that just happened last hour or two that kind of built on. Yeah, that. We'll so get to that first. There, first, there's the stage breaking news on this subject. All right. So let's uh, dial your clocks back to last Friday and the D.C. Circuit. After sitting on the case for almost a year or a full year, actually, um, issued a ruling in the case of Blassingame v. Trump, which is a civil case brought by, it's actually a consolidation of several civil cases brought by members of Congress and members of the Capitol Police who uh, claim various types of injuries as a result of January 6th. And among the defendants they have named are the former president. Now, this is a tricky business as applied to Donald Trump, because in the right around 1980, the Supreme Court uh, handed down a very famous uh, opinion in a case called Nixon v. Fitzgerald, which says, basically, you cannot sue the president uh, for anything within the outer perimeters of the presidential office. It's uh, called official act immunity, and it basically says the president is immune from civil liability. It does not affect criminal liability. Hold that thought because we're going to get to the criminal liability question in one opinion. The Supreme Court has had very few opportunities to clarify what official act immunity does and doesn't cover. In fact, it has had exactly one, which is the Clinton v. Jones sexual harassment case, which those of you above a certain age will remember involved conduct that took place in an Arkansas hotel while Bill Clinton was still governor of Arkansas while before he was president. And therefore, in Clinton v. Jones, the Supreme Court said, okay, it is certainly beyond the outer perimeter of the presidential function to sexually harass somebody before you were president. And so all we really know about the scope of presidential immunity is that, first of all, it's very broad. It's anything that can reasonably be considered an official act with an official act defined as within the outer perimeter of the presidential function but that does not include stuff that happened before you were president. So that's all we knew until these cases were filed. And I think it's fair to say that everybody expected this to be a divisive issue on the DC circuit uh, with presidential power, people taking much more robust views of it than maybe liberal just judges. And that did not happen. Uh, so this is, in my opinion, you know, the DC circuit at its very best taking a highly divisive question on which you would expect people to, you know, go in all kinds of different predictable directions. And the chief judge, Sri uh, uh, Srinivasan, a liberal judge for whom uh, one Scott Anderson once clerked, uh, and a very conservative judge uh, for whom nobody on this call has clerked, uh, Greg Katzis, uh, but who is actually a former Trump White House lawyer, all there are minor differences between them. Um, but on the body of the opinion, they are all unanimous um, on on the, the material critical questions. And they hold, I think, something that is really quite devastating for Trump, um, 
which is that you evaluate a president's action for civil liability purposes based on the functional analysis of whether he was playing the president's role or whether in these cases he was playing the role as a seeker of office. And he is no more immune than, you know, Joe Biden was in 2020 for conduct committed in his capacity as a candidate. And as a way to figure out which he was doing, you do a contextual analysis and go from there. And so if you think about this in the context of post-January 6th activity, where a lot of stuff that Trump was doing was with campaign lawyers, personal lawyers, uh, was really not involving public performance of presidential duties, I think it opens up a potentially very significant set of uh, uh, of legal actions against him, most immediately the ones at issue here. Okay, so fast forward a couple of hours after this opinion comes down, and Judge Tanya Chutkin, who has, of course, the D.C. January 6th case, produces a second ruling, which is on Trump's rather extravagant effort to get the Nixon v. Fitzgerald principle, which affects only civil, not criminal cases, to apply to criminal cases as well. And Trump had moved to dismiss that indictment on the grounds that everything he did was an official presidential act and Nixon v. Fitzgerald actually should be applied in the criminal context too. Now, there is virtually no support for this. Uh, and Chutkin rejected it in very strong terms. I don't think that's any surprise. I don't think any district court was likely to accept this. This is a, a doctrine that if it's going to be promulgated is really going to be created by the Supreme Court. And so uh, I don't think I don't think a lot of analysts were expecting Judge Chutkin to do anything other than what she did. But uh, now to bring us up to date to right now, uh, a couple of hours ago, Trump filed a notice of appeal to the D.C. Circuit. He is, for technical reasons we can go into in the Q&A if people want, entitled to an immediate appeal of this. And he not only noticed that immediate appeal, he also asked for a stay of all the proceedings while that appeal takes place. And the significance of that uh, request is that he uh, claims that the uh, a stay is mandatory and is a matter of the jurisdiction of the lower court, that Judge Chutkin lost jurisdiction over the case the moment he appealed it, and that because this issue is one of whether he has to face trial at all, it is one on which a, a, a stay is mandatory. And so if he is, if the DC Circuit or the Supreme Court agrees with him about that, and I expect the government will resist it, but if they agree with him about that, that could put in jeopardy the March 5th, uh, March 4th, March 5th trial uh, date for the for this case. So that kind of brings us up to speed. I'm not sure if uh, you want me to go into any more detail on any of those points, but that's that's the overview.
Well, I want to come back to today's filing, but let's spend a minute on the two immunity decisions that we planned to talk about two hours ago before we found out about this new filing that came in today. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between the two. Obviously, the blasting game case, civil case, different sort of immunity uh, or different context for immunity, even though the constitutional grounding of it is more or less the same, which is about interference with the office of the president. What is the relationship between the two? What do you anticipate there being uh, a degree of transfer from the blasting game decision, which, of course, is by the same court that is going to hear the appeal from Judge Chutkin's decision? You know, what is that precedent, which presumably Judge Chutkin didn't have more than 30 minutes to review before she filed her opinion, if she even saw it come down? What can we take about how this court is likely to view her opinion on appeal, do we think? So I I think... Blassingame indicates that the D.C. Circuit is going to be a very unfriendly forum for Trump on appeal. That may not matter all that much because the D.C. Circuit is a way station to the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court wants to hear this, but it may not. And so, you know, the D.C. Circuit could end up being the last word. And, you know, candidly, it's very hard for me to imagine the Supreme Court, uh, the D.C. Circuit saying out of one side of its mouth, hey, Fitzgerald immunity is a bit narrower than you thought. And, you know, you all thought it applied to all kinds of things that the president might do. But we're here to tell you when the president acts in his capacity as a candidate, he's not covered by presidential immunity, and then turn around a week or two later or a month or two later and say, oh, but by the way, it also shields him from criminal liability, right? That would be a very strange pair of rulings. So I think on the merits, it indicates that Trump has a very hard row ahead of him at the D.C. Circuit. I don't think it says anything about what it's likely to mean at the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court wants to uh, consider the matter, except for one thing, which is that, you know, usually cross-ideological unanimous D.C. Circuit opinions where there is no conflict in the circuit are the least amenable to cert. I mean, justices tend to look at an opinion that has Judith Rogers, Greg Katzis, and the chief judge, Srinivasan, and say, you know, that that comes to the Supreme Court with a very heavy presumption of intellectual seriousness and being right as a result of the the just the diversity of people that you have philosophically on the same set of ideas. I think that's right. I'd also know Judge Srinivasan is one of the savvier people about kind of framing arguments in a way to avoid reversal on appeal, including pushing the envelopes a little bit where warranted. The fact that he authored that opinion, I think, is 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 indicative as well, even though you had the two concurrences. Tell us a little bit about today's filing. Like, where do you think that fits in here? Is this just another delay tactic or is there some merit here? I looked into this a little bit and have some thoughts, but I want you to get your thoughts out. Yeah, first. so you're more of the DC Circuit procedure guy than I am. But look, I have read the filing, which is 11 pages. I have not spent time diving into the citations. I think I I would be very interested to see how the government responds to this. And my, my instinct is that the government's response is likely to be, uh, first of all, 
a try Trump is correct that a trial cannot proceed before this issue is resolved that you are in fact when you're asserting immunity it's immunity against trial not just an immunity against a finding of guilt right it's not simply a defense it's an argument that you know hey i could shoot somebody in 5th avenue and if this immunity applies it doesn't you know you don't get to try me right think of diplomatic immunity right it doesn't matter if the guy's guilty he's immune and he doesn't face trial and so the question's going to live or die in in the issue of can you do the pre-trial stuff while the dc circuit is thinking about this or you know can you continue giving trump his discovery can you deal with pre-trial motions so that when the dc circuit rules and when the supreme court rules you're kind of ready to go or do you have to freeze on everything and honestly i have not studied the case law that they cite uh to figure out what the rule is and by the way it's not clear to me that the rule that they're citing would apply here because since the contours of presidential immunity are completely unknown if it exists at all which judge shutkin says it doesn't how do we know that the rule that the rules that apply to certain other immunities would apply here too and so i think the answer is like we should probably wait until the government files its response and then the dc circuit's going to do its own thing with it i wouldn't be surprised if they did put a stay on it or at least on some parts of it but i'm curious what you think cuz you know the dc the ways and and the wily ways of the dc circuit better than i do i i don't know if i would say that i can't say i've encountered this issue before uh as i'm not sure the dc <laughs> yeah, circuit I don't has think either many people have encountered no this but it's it's interesting the move that uh, the Trump team is trying to make here, and it's notable. It's I think a little bit of a flash of trying to make a more controversy of this case because they make a very aggressive argument and then have a fallback argument that's much more reasonable, as is their way in many of these things. Their more aggressive argument, the one that's getting a lot of kind of immediate reactions on Twitter and other places, is that they the court Judge Chuckin has no option that she is obligated to stay lower court proceedings while this appeal goes on. To make that argument, they cite Coinbase, a decision from this past term in the Supreme Court that basically interpret a statutory provision relating to arbitration to say, well, when somebody's appealing a denial of arbitration under the statutory provision allowing for interlocutory appeal, that that ma- it mandates a stay of the, ma- of the matter until that's resolved because the whole point of determining arbitrability is whether the whole matter can proceed or not. And it interpret that intent into the statutory provision, which is silent on the question, and overruled a district court opinion that had allowed certain aspects of the case to proceed even as arbitrability was being appealed. That was really controversial. It's worth saying that's a 5-4 opinion. The three liberals or Democratic appointees on the court and Justice Thomas joining with them in a not as unusual move as it may may sound if you follow court procedural stuff um, the last few years, objected pretty strenuously and said, you're just making up the law here, Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote the majority opinion. So it's a pretty bold move to take that, which is a very context-specific statutory argument um, in a very different context, arbitration, uh, and then say, porting this over to this very different context of presidential immunity, substantially common law immunity, or at least kind of a, a constitutional you know, principles-based immunity, not a clear statutory intent question. Um, and today, this applies in the same way. 
that said, their fallback argument is essentially that, well, applying the court's discretionary standards of staying, they should still completely stay the matter. I kind of suspect they have more of an argument there, but completely stay, what does that mean? Does that mean the government can't go ahead and hand over a bunch of records to former President Trump? I, I'm not sure it does. Um, I don't think it would be, you know, the, the best, it seems like Trump might be hoping to get out of this as an argument that they have to push back the March trial date because even if they still get the records from the Justice Department, they can't be obligated to review them. But maybe that court, the judge buys that. Maybe the judge says, no, actually, in that trial date, I take into account the potential for an interlocutory appeal because we knew this was a possibility going into this. And it, clearly, you were going to appeal around presidential immunity. So we don't need to just pad time on here if the actual issue is resolved by then. So long story short, I, I'm not sure it's actually as big a deal filing as I think some of us thought it was initially. Um, and I suspect the boldest arguments might not go anywhere, um, but some of the other lower hanging arguments might find a little grip some places. One other thought on that how much it matters if there's a stay is almost entirely a function of how quickly the DC circuit deals with the case. And one possibility is that, you know, this is a lengthy litigation, that this is something that judges take seriously at the DC circuit level. And then it goes up to the Supreme Court and they take it seriously at the Supreme Court level. Another possibility, though, is that the DC circuit takes a quick look at this and says, uh, presidential criminal immunity? Are you joking? And uh, deals with it in a highly expedited proceeding, yielding a unanimous quick opinion that the Supreme Court relatively quickly denies cert in. And so I think, you know, how significant the question of a stay is with respect to the March 4th trial deadline is almost entirely a question of the timeline of the appeal about which the range can be, you know, in recent DC circuit practice, super, super fast in the case of some of the... the Overnight in some cases. Yeah, overnight, literally in some cases, or as in Blassingame, a year, right? And that's just at the DC circuit level in the Trump cases. And so I think, you know, like I've any, but a lot of people this week are going to tell you they know what's happening in this case. And I'm going to tell you I don't and neither do any of them. Fair point. Fair enough. Well, let us go to another part of the January 6th criminal case. Uh, Roger, I'm going to come to you for a little bit because we got some interesting filings this week pointing to some new evidence that the special counsel is suggesting they're bringing forward that sheds light on new aspects of the case, how they're building their case that we didn't have insight into before that wasn't self-evident on the face of the indictment, or at least maybe confirm some thoughts we had on the basis of that. Tell us what we learned this week, Roger. Yeah, the... Uh, the uh... Prosecution filed what's called a 404B notice, and this is whenever you you want to uh, pre- introduce evidence of uh, that the defendant committed some other crimes or wrongs than the ones he's formally charged with in the indictment. And so uh, the indictment alleges conspiracies that lasted from November 14th to January 20th, 2020 to twenty. 20- 21. Um, So if you're going to introduce evidence outside that window, you need to file this notice. And that gives us a peek at what they're going to introduce. And the reason you do that is you can't introduce this stuff to to smear the uh, defendant or to try to show bad character or a propensity to commit crimes. You, You can only use it for certain permissible purposes like to show intent, to show a plan, modus operandi, uh, that sort of thing, motive. So 
uh, that's why they uh, uh, lay this out. And and in the course of doing that, there's some things we we probably did anticipate, like they're going to uh, show that uh, he floated baseless claims of election fraud in previous elections, including 2016, and even in 2012, which I hadn't remembered. Apparently, he claimed that there were uh, voting machines uh, flipping votes from uh, Obama to Romney, which is one I hadn't remembered. But um, And then there are also, they want to show the early um, refusals to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. You probably remember that from the September 2020 debate. He did that also in the October 2016 debate. Um, so they want to try to introduce that. And to, but this was a, a really interesting one was to show, they say to show knowledge that he knew he'd lost. They, they, they apparently have evidence that someone they call an unindicted co-conspirator, and they don't mean one of the six who's named in the indictment here. They, it's a campaign employee. And they said that on November 4th, so, you know, right after the ele- the day after the election, Somebody, uh, this campaign employee is texting with an attorney in Detroit, an attorney with the campaign who's uh, coordinating with the at the TCF center in Detroit where they're counting votes and apparently uh, or allegedly um, instructing the person to incur. They see that the trend is that Trump is losing. And uh, the, uh, the the count is is going to go toward Biden, and he encourages a riot. Um, that's the allegation. And there's a, a lengthy portion of this, uh, and of course, something resembling a riot does then occur. Very aggressive uh, individuals making baseless challenges. So that, and there's quite a passage that's redacted. So that's quite interesting. Then there's also claims of retaliation against uh, the people that were undermining his claims, which continue outside the parameters of the conspiracy. Trump and and unindicted co-conspirator one, which is Giuliani, it's alleged uh, retaliated against a former the former RNC chief counsel, which I think is Justin Reamer at that time. It was published at that time that he was debunking the idea that uh, that Trump that there was any that there was election fraud. So apparently there was pre and post conspiracy attacks on him, according to the government. The remaining ones we we were sort of familiar with pre and post conspiracy attacks on individuals, sort of like the attacks on Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Um, Those came out in the context of the gag order litigation. But one of those was as late as December 2022, after the January 6th committee report came out. Um, he called, uh, I think, either Ruby Freeman or Shea Moss or both treacherous monsters. And um, then there's uh, finally the post-conspiracy support for the rioters, which you see, uh, you know, he's he's praised this January 6th choir, the group in prison that that sings, uh, uh, um, I don't know, America the Beautiful or something. And it's composed of highly violent criminals from January 6th, including the guy that sprayed uh, Brian Sicknick uh, the day before he died at the age of 42. 
of uh, two strokes. He also has defended, has said that uh, Enrique Tario, the proud boy, chief proud boy, was uh, horribly, horribly treated. So these sorts of things they want to put in. That too, we, we, we'd seen some of that in, in, in their response to a motion to strike that Trump had, had uh, filed, but it's, it's pretty interesting material. Do we get a sense from these that the special counsel's argument is departing or maybe a little different than what we might have expected from the indictment? You know, we all participated in a big write-up about where we thought the case might be. I think two write-ups, technically, I think we had to break into two pieces. Is there anything that new in terms of trajectory or new focus here, or is this just kind of a deeper level about how they're building the case we were expecting? I think it's more of a, you know, some of the details. Um Uh, We've seen the similar strategies, at least, if not the exact same information presented by the January 6th committee. And also in the recent Colorado trial, um, uh, trying to oust, uh, keep Trump off the ballot. You know, you you go back and show the pattern and practice of how he behaves and and so on. So I I don't think so. But there were these details I didn't know. And uh, it does show that they have uh, seem to have a, a sort of a deep bench of witnesses here that uh, that I didn't know about. Well, it's certainly interesting. A few other small, small developments we don't need to spend time on, but we'll flag for people here about in the January 6th case here in D.C. Uh, we've we've kind of seen a number of news stories about the fact that jury notices appear to have gone out that that would be uh, setting up a potential participation in this trial, uh, causing a small stir, certainly locally among those of us who might be in the jury pool. I have not gotten one of these. Uh, thank goodness. I uh, feel so left out. <laughs> like I totally want that jury questionnaire. And another note, we are still waiting on the DC Circuit gag order uh opinion. This is the appeal of Judge Chutkin's gag order, which has been pending for a while. As Ben already hinted a little bit, uh DC Circuit sometimes moves very fast, sometimes moves very slow. If they're moving a little bit slower, uh, particularly on an urgent matter like this, it does suggest that there might be a little bit of disagreement where people might be writing opinions um beyond a short uh, agreed opinion uh, upholding the district court because it doesn't seem like that would take a lot of time to work and ponder and discuss. Uh, although maybe who knows people might want to frame it a particular way um so it might not be a good sign of things to come there for judge Chuckin's opinion as written doesn't mean they're not going to get the same place just might uh, need to approach it differently uh depending on the panel and the judges involved let us turn our eyes now a bit further south to the state of georgia from which you may be joining us anna bauer i actually don't know your current location perhaps georgia vicinity tell us a little bit what has been happening this week we had a big hearing on Friday, December 1st, this past Friday, that gave us a little bit of more perspective into where the case is likely headed and when. Um, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Tell us about what we learned from that hearing. Yeah. So this hearing, uh, which I should say, I am joining you from Georgia, from the uh, famous World Book Encyclopedia Library uh, at, at my parents' home in Georgia. But uh, I, yes, there was a hearing on Friday that has not gotten a lot of attention, maybe because it was about six hours long. Uh, I like to think of it as smorgasbord day in Fulton County because there was this just you know, the number of motions that Judge McAfee wanted to get through argument on. There was a revolving door of defense attorneys who were, uh, you know, going up to the lectern to make argument on these motions. 
But it, I think the most notable thing about this hearing is that it was the debut of, of Steve Sadow, who is the attorney who uh, is Trump's attorney in this case, replaced uh, Drew Findling uh, earlier this year on, on I think it was the day Trump was indicted. Um, and we haven't really seen a whole lot of of him, you know, in terms of making actual arguments. He's been adopting a lot of arguments in the case from that other defendants have been making. Uh, and it was his first appearance before Judge McAfee. So that in itself was notable. But what happened during the hearing in terms of this discussion about... Are we not going to hear about his boots? Oh, they were blue. So I actually, I I uh, have sent an email <laughs> to uh, to ask um, what exactly, you know, what the leather or the exotic beast that uh, that uh, he had on his feet that day. I do know they were blue, but I can't tell you anymore about whether or not they were ostrich or or caiman alligator. Uh, so I feel like I'm I'm really uh, losing uh, out on my uh, Steve Sage owls cowboy boots scoops that that we've really had a you know string of exclusives about here at lawfare um, although so this I'm one i gotta say the blue boots uh we got beat by the atlanta journal constitution this week um on the color of the boots and uh you know next thing you know we won't be first in line <laughs> well look i i mean i they 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 can take the boot scoop, but they will not take the the first position in line. I can tell you that. So watch out, AJC, at the federal court removal hearings for Mark Meadows next week. Lawfare will be first. I can guarantee you. But no. So what what was really notable about this though, Scott, is that. Uh, we had some discussion, kind of un unplanned, but it was known that this might come up. Of course, as background, the district attorney's office originally asked for a March trial date for this case. We then had all of this, you know, happen with uh, uh, Ken Chesbro and, and Sidney Powell, who request speedy trials. They uh, pleaded out, so those trials got got canceled effectively because of that. Those plea deals, uh, and then the rest of these defendants have kind of been sitting and waiting to find out when it is that they will have their trial. So what we learned in this trial, though, or excuse me, in this hearing is that Steve Sadow is basically, unsurprisingly, asking for uh, a kind of delay that that uh, Judge McAfee should not set a, a trial date. The state, after because of all these other uh, federal cases and the New York case, uh, has asked for an August date. They believe that that will go after the D.C. federal uh, trial that's supposed to happen in March. And then the uh, classified documents case that may or may not happen in Judge Cannon's courtroom over the summer. And, and so what we had is this kind of discussion where, you know, Judge McAfee was asking the state, you know, would it be election interference to have uh, this trial in August? And the state responded by saying, you know, no, Judge McAfee, it wouldn't be election interference because uh, this is just, you know, the business of Fulton County kind of uh, proceeding as usual. But but I will say, I think that they really uh, missed out on some opportunities to make some better arguments, I think, in part because this was not a discussion that 
uh, was necessarily supposed to be raised and argued on the merits at, at during this hearing. But, uh, you know, they kind of didn't really have, I think, a whole lot of arguments uh, on the merits of of uh, in response to Steve Sadow's claims that this was election interference and that it would interrupt a presidential campaign. Um, so I, that was really interesting. Also, what was interesting, though, is that Steve Sadow made the claim that and we've kind of been expecting this, that if this case does not go to trial and if 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 it's not, uh, you know, completed by the time that Trump is potentially elected and then inaugurated into office, he said that, you know, that means the state would not be able to. Uh, try Trump until 2029. Uh, so that was and and the reason being that under the supremacy clause, he argued, uh, you know, there there would be it would basically be impossible for Trump to, uh, you know, carry out the duties of the presidency. So it, it was there. That was, I think, the most, you know, meaty part of the hearing. But Ben, am I missing anything there? I think you listened to it as well. I listened to some of it. Uh, it was six hours long. I have a question for you, though, about the connection between this and the stay motion that we just talked about, which is, you know, at some point in this Fulton County hearing, uh, Judge McAfee asked the DA's office, how many days notice would you need to go to trial? And they said 30 days. And so imagine that tomorrow the D.C. Circuit slaps a stay on the proceedings in Washington. Um, do you think one of the things that Judge McAfee may be thinking about is if March gets bogged down, we know Judge Cannon's not doing anything before May. You know, I've got this nice block of time. Is it possible that we're looking at a 30-day notice uh, be ready for trial end of January, guys. I mean, look, I, I would be a little bit surprised if Judge McAfee did it that way. I don't I wouldn't rule it out. What I will say is that I think uh, this is one reason why I say I think that the state could have had some better arguments prepared. So, for example, one of the, uh, you know, arguments that Steve Sadow was making is that, uh, oh, well, you know, the there's going to be the D.C. case in March. Then there there will be the Florida case. Then the, there's the New York case. He, he's making all these arguments that, OK, the earliest it could happen is August. But as you rightly make you know, this argument, Ben, we actually don't really know if any of those trials are going to go. And there's very good reason to think that the classified documents case likely will not happen in May. Uh, and so I think that maybe what Fonnie Willis's, you know, office could have done is at least, you know, said, well, look, you know, we've looked at it. The the classified documents case is X number of months behind. So we should have, you know, at least a tentative date uh, in which, you know, we set it for then. And if the if the classified documents case happens or, or whatever, then so be it and we'll move it back. But, you know, this is this is a date in which you know, it seems like it's probably going to be free at least. Um, so why not set it for now? The, they didn't make those kinds of arguments. However, they did raise the question of, you know, potentially setting a, an August date and then, you know, moving it back if if there's some other conflict with other trials. 
I, I think that Judge McAfee, though, seemed to at least think that, you know, it's it's worth uh, thinking about how uh, this all will interact with the election. But to your point, Ben, he did make this kind of comment that I thought was very interesting about having a potential A team and a B team. He he, he was very concerned about the logistics of having, you know, 15 people in a pool for trial and and how kind of nightmarish that would be in terms of even finding a courtroom that could fit all the defense counsel and the defendants in the same room. Uh, Not to mention, you know, the things that we've seen in the young, young thug trial or the YSL trial, which is a um, another very sprawling Rico case in Fulton County in which they've, you know, it took them uh, almost a year to see the jury. Uh, So judge McAfee mentioned, you know, maybe severing the, 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 defendants into two groups. You'd have, you know, maybe eight people in one, eight people in another. And then if there are things going on with some defendants and the eight on the A team, then the B team needs to just be prepared to kind of take their place and go to trial, you know, in that first group. So I really don't know how he's going to do it, but I, 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 I think that he's thinking about the same things that you are. I just can't say, you know, I definitely think that the earliest we might get a, a trial would be March, but I really think it's a stretch to think it would happen then. It would it, there would have to be a lot of things that go on with delaying the DC case, and I think Judge McAfee'd have to be really certain that the defense counsel was ready and that they'd have had had enough time to prepare. I just think if you have a stay in the D, from the DC Circuit and you have a briefing schedule that looks like it's going to buy you some time, and you're Scott McAfee or the judge in New York who's got a short case, right? You can try that case in a few weeks. All of a sudden, you might look at it and say, boy, the first half of this year looks pretty pretty clear. Um, You know, I've been being deferential to those federal cases, but Judge Cannon's sure not in a rush, and the D.C. Circuit's got put a big leash on, 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 uh, uh, judge Chutkin. So, you know, why not me? Yeah. And that may be, I just think Bonnie Wilson's office is going to have to make that argument. Judge McAfee's not going to do that. sua sponte. So I, I or on his own. So I, I really think, you know, if they're listening, maybe that's a strategy now that they'll take now that Ben Wittes has, has raised it. But I, I just, I, I think they need to to make that argument if Judge Mackey is going to do something like that. I, I think the New York, uh, technically, I think the New York criminal case is also scheduled for March at the moment, unless unless that's been put off. I, uh, he, he had said that he would put it off for a federal case. But if the federal case vanishes, I don't know if he'll put it off. That's a fair point. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. 
Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, this isn't the only development we've got out of the state of Georgia. We've also heard uh, had an interesting bit of media come out about one of the co-defendants in that case, Trivian Cootie, uh, QT uh, and some responses to that, or actually a kind of lack of response so far, at least from prosecutors. Tell us a little bit about that case and that you've been tracking and what you find is remarkable about that. Yeah, there was this really interesting, uh, you know, uh, report from the website Midas Touch. They got their hands on a video that uh, was a, of a Instagram live that one of Trump's co-defendants, Trevion uh, Cootie, did to raise money for her, you know, GoFundMe or, or whatever fundraising she had for her legal defense fund. Um, and and she, of course, is is charged with crimes that are related to this uh, alleged pressure campaign to, uh, you know, kind of uh, allegedly intimidate uh, Ruby Freeman, a Georgia election worker, into uh, admitting falsely that that she committed electoral fraud when in fact she did not. And and of course, Ruby Freeman, it's known, is is going to be someone who is a key witness in in with respect to those charges. And during this Instagram live, uh, Trevion Cootie made this statement that she did not name Ruby Freeman, but she did heavily imply that she was talking about Ruby Freeman. The 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 comment that she made was, you know, uh, it, there was a lot of context surrounding it that it very much indicated that's who she was talking about. And she said something to the effect of uh, she said, I'm going to F her, her whole life up when this case is over. And that's a pretty, you know, egregious comment to make, it, it, especially compared to, you know, some of the comments that Harrison Floyd, another Trump co-defendant, previously made that that then prosecutors sought to revoke his bond as a result. So there was a lot of speculation from legal experts and, uh, you know, from I, I myself expected that Fulton County prosecutors might seek to revoke her bond. Uh, there was a report from CNN that they were considering it, but so far we haven't seen any movement on that, which I think is really interesting because Again, you know, while Harrison Floyd, uh, Judge McAfee found he was in a technical violation for making some of these uh, social media posts about uh, potential witnesses, you know, he did not find that he was making intimidating or, or threats of harassment. But this comment, you know, saying that you're going to F up the, the life of a potential witness is is certainly something that is is more egregious, although, you know, the volume maybe of Harrison Floyd's uh, social media posts uh, could have been something that that uh, kind of tipped the hand of of Fonnie Willis's team. But it's just very interesting to see, you know, that they haven't made any moves on this yet. I'm still watching the docket uh, to see if if anything will happen. It could be they're gathering more information, maybe seeing if there's there's other instances in which she's made uh, comments uh, that are similar to that. 
So I, I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but it's something that I'm looking out for. And a lot of people that I've talked to, uh, you know, who are defense counsel in Fulton County, unrelated to this case, have said that it seems like Fulton County prosecutors would have a, a pretty strong motion to revoke bond based on that comment that Trevion Cootie made. Well, certainly something to watch there. Two of the developments I'll flag really briefly, just so we can save time. We can circle back in the Q&A if folks are interested there. Um, we, of course, have some news reporting about Ken Chesbrough participating not just as a witness in Georgia as a condition of his guilty uh, plea agreement with the government, uh, state government there, but also engaging or at least taking willingness to engage with investigators in Nevada, Arizona, other states about their fake electors investigations um, and some reports about other potential guilty pleas there. People who have kept, pled guilty in Georgia, excuse me, engaging in similar degrees of cooperation, um, something that was hinted at in some of their uh, plea arrangements, something to keep an eye out there uh, in terms of what role they'll be playing. And of course, our own Anna Bauer as uh, a wonderful new piece looking at new angles of the Coffee County case with some additional updates in Lawfare uh, from, I think, this past weekend. Is that right, Anna? Uh, in which case, please check that out on lawfarmedia.org uh, for a little bit of a deeper dive there. Happy to circle back on this in Q&A. But let me, just in the interest of time, move on to, of course, our third big criminal trial in the Trump space. That is the Mar-a-Lago case where, Roger, we've seen a few developments here in this case. We've seen some arguments about SIPA uh, and then a series of kind of unsealed filings, giving us a little bit more of a glimpse into some aspects of the investigation in case that we didn't really see before. Tell us what we've learned and how it might bear on the trajectory of this case over the next couple of weeks. Well, the key thing is what happened yesterday, which is the government filed its notice of uh, what's called a SIPA Section 4 notice, SEPA uh, is the Classified Information Procedure Act. You remember the, the government turned over, uh, it, it, there are 32 uh, classified documents that are the subject of the charges against Trump, the, the documents he willfully withheld. They turned those over to, to Trump because Trump had already, uh, they didn't turn them over, but he has access to them in a skiff. They didn't try to keep that from him because he's seen them before. They wouldn't let the, his two co-defendants see those documents. There's some small additional amount of material where they think that they are obligated to show him, uh, but they want to make redactions or deletions. And Section 4 is the way you, you do that. And you, the way it's typically done is you go to the court ex parte, which means uh, without the uh, defendant's lawyers even present in a sealed proceeding, and you show her the documents and you say, here's the sections we think he needs. Here, This stuff here is about sources and methods. It's ultra sensitive. Uh, there's no need for him to have it. And, and then uh, typically what happens is that the Defense also ex parte goes separately to the judge and says, here's our key defenses uh, that we plan. And then the judge decides, well, is this fair to turn over the sections uh, that the, the uh, government has proposed? And uh, uh, Trump is saying, no, even though that's the usual procedure, we want it to be an adversarial procedure. We want to be involved in this whole process. Now, so they filed a motion today to, uh, I mean, yesterday also, that to have this be an adversarial process. And that will be very controversial if it's granted. 
Brandon Van Grack, uh, a prosecutor in this national security matters, said that they would have to appeal if 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 Cannon grants this motion uh, on Twitter. He said that I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. the The motion is actually first of all, it, it's it it would give the documents only to cleared counsel, not to Trump himself which is a little surprising. And uh, the argument is, well, you've already given him at least as sensitive stuff. You're giving him access to at least as sensitive stuff. And this is probably related to that stuff. And we're asking to give it to cleared counsel only. And I feel certain, you know, based on everything Cannon's done, she's going to grant this motion as to Trump. A more complex situation is with respect to Nauta and uh, de Oliveira, who are demanding also to see a great deal of this evidence, and not, not just their lawyers. They want to see those 32 documents that Trump is charged with, even though they're not charged with withholding anything. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what uh, she does there. If, if she's going to show those documents to Nauta and de Oliveira, I think that would uh, there would have to be an appeal. If she shows these other ones to Trump's counsel, uh, they'll have a tough choice to make. Do they do they appeal that or not? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Roger, the last case that we've heard, actually a family of cases, I should say, are once close to your heart. These, of course, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment cases. Uh, these are the cases tr- seeking to disqualify former President Trump from the presidency by virtue of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment enacted in the aftermath of the Civil War. We have seen a decision recently in the state of Colorado from a trial court uh, that I think we talked about in the last episode uh, of this podcast uh, and this event series. Um, we are now primed for another decision on appeal that we saw a hearing in this week. We've seen some action in some other cases as well dealing with the same issue. Tell us what's happening in the 14th Amendment Section 3 zone this week. Well, the most important one is the Colorado one because it's already in the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court. And we heard the argument yesterday. It was two hours. Uh, It was quite interesting. Seven justices, all of them asked questions, a lively bench. I would say that, uh, you know, exceedingly uh, subjective uh, my impression was that at least two uh, are leaning toward uh, disqualification, which would be obviously historic, even if it's just them. Uh, we've come a long way since uh, you know January 6th itself. Uh, the other five I couldn't read. There were definitely issues that some of them had. If you remember, this is the case where the judge, uh, Judge Wallace, uh, actually found that Trump uh, did uh, engage in insurrection, but then she ruled for Trump on the theory that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is the one that bars insurrectionists from office, roughly speaking, uh, doesn't apply to presidents. And uh, that had been considered uh, one of the more outre arguments. I don't think people expected this to be uh, decided on that ground. But uh, and I don't think it will be upheld on those grounds. Uh, If Trump wins, I think it will be on other grounds. Uh, I think it would likely be the ones they seem to have the most trouble with were 
the most boring issues, the state law, election law issues, is this procedure, uh, can you raise constitutional questions through this procedure? And uh, then also there are the federal justiciability, political questions, uh, doctrines, prudential concerns. Prudential is always uh, uh, an ominous word. It means uh, judges are going to punt. The concern there mainly was uh, about chaos and uh, uh, what what if, uh, you know, Colorado is the only state not to, uh, you know, let them on the ballot uh, or, you know, if you have a patchwork. But uh, one of the uh, justices sort of uh, jumped in to sort of uh, throw a lifeline to the petitioner's lawyer who was having a little trouble with that question. And he said, well, you know, if we ban him from the ballot, I'm sure it will be appealed and the Supreme Court will decide these issues and we'll have uniformity. So uh, that could be how that's resolved. But, you know, I had gone to in great lengths in an article uh, the day of the argument to try to lay out the uh, the argument. How, how had the judge uh, Wallace uh, ruled that um, Section 3 didn't apply to presidents and to try to say, you know, maybe it's not absurd, maybe it's a little far-fetched, but it's not absurd. And uh, But at least two, I would say maybe four of the justices clearly thought it was absurd, and they used the word absurd. They, You know, one of them was asking, uh, how is it not absurd to say that anybody who engaged in insurrection can't serve except the president or the vice president. How is that not absurd? So uh, I don't think it'll be uh, that argument. One last thing I'll say is that I I personally had thought that the, you know, there's this issue about whether Section 3 is self-executing. And uh, I think personally, if it goes to the Supreme Court, that might be how they kill Section 3. Uh, there, there's this 1869 ruling called Griffin's case where the, a judge says that it's not self-executing and uh, meaning that uh, Congress has to go out and uh, create enforcement legislation, which we don't have here. And it's not just a judge. It's, it's, it was Chief Justice Salmon Chase, but he I was, was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, he was not acting as uh, he was acting as a, he was writing circuit. So he was uh, just uh, acting as a lower court judge. So um, anyway, that got very little uh, time and it, it was greeted skeptically. But, uh, you know, what actually happened, and it was a little sad, really, is that the that was to have been argued by uh, a scholar named uh, Josh Blackman. Uh, and uh, the uh, Trump had ceded 10 minutes of his time to Blackman, who, who uh, also wrote an amicus brief on behalf of his colleague, Tillman, Seth Tillman. And those guys have have made a lot of uh, done a lot of, a lot of scholarship about the self-executing question as well as the other question about why section 3 doesn't apply and uh he had to pull out on monday because of a, a family conflict so we hope everything's okay with him but i i think it actually could have hurt uh trump's argument that he had to pull out cuz uh the 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 regular lawyer uh, was really not prepared to discuss that very much. Well, we are waiting 
uh, with bated breath for the decision on the Supreme Court in Colorado. Obviously, there are some other matters churning. Which is going to happen fast, right? It has to. Uh, the the uh, the ballot, the primary ballot is uh, has to be certified January 5th. Before then, at least, although obviously there could be an appeal from there, <laughs> as the court itself noted. So it's a tight timeline on all fronts. One last thing I'll mention is a new case was filed today in the Oregon Supreme Court directly. We'll have to, I haven't had a chance to comb through that. Um, but obviously, if it starts at that level, it's got a better chance. Also, it has lawyers involved. A lot of these cases, you know, there's been 33 of these cases. Only four of them are brought by lawyers, you know, uh, uh, by an attorney. So these are among the more serious cases. Well, we will be keeping an eye on those cases. One other universe of cases, Jorgen, is going to touch on super briefly before we go to Q&A. Of course, we've seen some updates just in some of the fake elector prosecution, something we're beginning to watch uh, a little more closely here at Lawfare. We saw a plea agreement in Wisconsin over a civil suit against several of the fake electors led by a number of groups, including the Institute for Congressional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown, a group we've done a lot of work with in the past and are friends of ours. Um, they successfully got a plea agreement out where in exchange for waiving any monetary damages, uh, some of the fake electors there conceded that they should not have, in fact, been electors or pretended to be, uh, and that Joe Biden won the election. Um, and we saw charges filed in Nevada against several fake electors by grand jury there. Um, uh, we also know there are ongoing investigations in Arizona, Michigan, and a number of other states as well. So more likely to follow. In other words, the universe of Trump trials and tribulations only continues to grow as time progresses. But for now, that is all that is fit to print or fit to talk about for this week. The floor is now closed for questions. Uh, let us turn to some of our first questions. Julia Cooper, why don't you throw us uh, our inaugural question and or and we will provide some inaugural answers for you this week. Okay. I read through Jack Smith's uh, recent fi- 404B filing. And one thing, and I, I looked it up and I still am not clear on the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic evidence um, as he uses it in his filing. Can you discuss that, please? Um, I'll try, and maybe Scott can correct me, but I think that um, some evidence is it's sort of in the process of proving the, the, the charged crimes themselves. You bring in evidence that is it's directly relevant and it, it, but it happens to be a, another crime as well that isn't charged. So that would be intrinsic. But if you're talking about, you know, something he did in 2016, uh, that's clearly extrinsic. It's way outside the conspiracy period. That uh, that's what they're getting at. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, Roger. Yeah, Roger. That's. I mean, I think that's basically right. It's because uh, 404B prohibits, you know, the admission of certain types of evidence that are that would show, you know, Roger explained before, like you're you're trying to show bad character or other acts that are previous crimes, for example, that someone's done, and that 404B typically prohibits those the admission of those things. But 404B that prohibition doesn't apply. Apply if it is intrinsic evidence, it only applies to extrinsic evidence. So things that aren't, you know, part of the same transaction or the same conspiracy that is itself charged within the indictment that prosecutors, you know, are trying to prove up. I'll give you a, a simple example. It came up in the January 6th cases a lot. You know, they would have video of the guy 
in a restricted zone inside the Capitol, you know, breaking the law and he'd be smoking a joint. And well, smoking a joint is a separate crime. But, you know, uh, they're showing him committing their crime, the one that's charged. So it's it's not an issue. That's intrinsic. Very useful. Thank you. Auntie, what do you have for us this week? Yes. Uh, hello. Good evening. So uh, what are the panelists' uh, favorite singers in the Judge Shutkin decision? And I have another. Second one is uh, looking back to the beginning of these uh, trials, could all panelists uh, name uh, one thing, just one thing that has uh, really, really surprised them in either the D.C., the Fulton County or the Florida trials to date? Thank you. Well, I will start with the latter because I uh, cannot say I remember any specific zingers from Judge Shetkin's opinion with the specificity to repeat them, unfortunately. I recall there being a little bit of attitude, which is always fun, a little flavor uh, to throw in there. Uh, the thing I am most surprised by uh, is elements of the Mar-a-Lago case, uh, and that is simply uh, the amount of information we've gotten about Trump's own interactions with his lawyers. It's really exceptional to pierce attorney-client privilege in this way, um, and the fact that it seems to be playing a pretty central role in establishing Trump's uh, mens rea right down to something I, I know we're going to talk about maybe some of the other questions, Jennifer Little's recent, or, or reports of Jennifer Little's testimony that she gave the grand jury about having expressly warned him about not complying fully with the FBI subpoena and the legal consequences. That is pretty damning stuff, uh, and, and I've been surprised and uh, shocked a little bit by such clear evidence he got such clear legal advice and chose to proceed down an alternate route anyway that is pretty damning and going to be a problem again i i remain convinced obstruction in the mar-a-lago case is the number one source of actual legal jeopardy for former president trump just because it's so open and shut uh anna how about you what what, what jumps out at you on these I mean, I can I won't forget the moment that I found out that Judge Eileen Cannon had been assigned again to uh, Trump's case in the classified documents, uh, obviously in the criminal case versus the civil proceedings. But, you know, I just and I spent hours and hours trying to figure out, you know, what how that happened and what the percentage chance it would be. And it was it just seemed like it was one of those you cannot make this stuff up kind of moments. Um, it was it was really surprising to me because I just did not expect that twist, um, especially because at the time, you know, it, it, there was so much confusion around where was it, you know, Miami? Was it a Miami case? Was it a West Palm Beach case? Which division? That kind of thing. So that was really surprising. I also will uh, was very surprised when we were in our morning editorial meeting and all of a sudden Sidney Powell was pleading guilty. And I just, you know, shouted out, I got to go. Sidney Powell's pleading guilty. Um, uh, and, and that was just surprising because she had made such a uh, name for herself as kind of a you know, true believer in, in election fraud. I, I don't think it's surprising when you actually look at the incentives and the kind of, you know, way that her defense counsel approached the case. But it was just a little bit surprising seeing someone who had been so integral to, you know, making uh, false claims about the election that she truly seemed to believe. Uh, so that was surprising. So that's just two things. And I'll stop there. Ben, how about you? So I'm going to confess something, uh, which is that I hate zingers from district judges in general. I love district judges who write always in the super restrained, just answering the question in front of them, not 
trying to figure out what's going to be the quote in the New York Times. So Chutkin had some good zingers about kings and presidents being above the law and uh, about whether presidents should have to think about whether they are going to be immune from crimes or prosecuted and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I I have come to dislike that kind of rhetoric in district judges. And and I really admired uh, the tone of the D.C. Circuit opinion in Blassing Game, which was completely devoid of any of that. It was just a technical analysis of the issue. And so my favorite zinger in the uh, Chutkin opinion is the part where she didn't do that, but where she just analyzed the issue, which is most of the opinion, by the way. Um, As to the part of this whole thing that has really surprised me, I have joked about this a bunch of times, but it is the performance of Scott McAfee, who, Matt, just, I mean, let's just pause a minute about this, because he's like gets my MVP for the entire Trump trials right now. Imagine that two years ago, you are appointed a state court criminal trial judge in Fulton County. The last thing you are thinking about is, oh, I'm going to have, you know, a a RICO conspiracy involving the former president of the United States to overthrow the election. And with 18 co-defendants from you know, some guy who tried to intimidate a poll worker to uh, the White House chief of staff, right? And this is the last thing on your mind. You're thinking you're going to have some murder cases. You're going to have some garden variety fraud. You're going to have some robberies. And then this case drops in your lap and you're 33 years old. You've been a prosecutor for a few years. You're a brand new judge. And I mean, all jokes about his bar mitzvah aside, this guy just picked up the case and he has just done a spectacular job. It is way harder than anything Eileen Cannon is dealing with. It is way harder than anything Judge Chutkin is dealing with or anything going on in New York. And he has just been fabulous. Um, in a low-key, no-bullshit kind of way. There's no rhetoric. And I just think he's been a breath of fresh air and completely surprising. And I love watching or listening to these hearings. There's some great advocacy going on from the from the from the lawyers. And uh, I love watching Fonnie Willis's people who are just real pros. But this judge is just really worth your time. And so that's my big surprise of of, of the whole event. Roger, when you bring us home, we'll go on the next question. Uh, biggest surprise was uh, about uh, two or three weeks before um, Anna's biggest surprise when uh, I heard uh, that. Uh, see, I, I thought the classified documents case like like you, Scott, you know, this is this is open and shut. You know, this. And then two or three weeks before that, we we found out first. Oh, they've started a grand jury in Florida. What's that about? And then, and then, oh, they're gonna bring it in Florida. And and that was the gut 
kick. I, I didn't know she would be the judge, but I knew who the jury would be. And it, it, the whole thing changes. Uh, so that was the biggest surprise. Um, and then the Zinger, uh, I mean, I thought that Chutkin's opinion was was really terrific. Uh, but the part that I liked the most was the the she makes the 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 analogy to the Washington's farewell address. And, um, you know, it, it, Washington is leaving unexpectedly, voluntarily after two terms. And that's really unusual in the late 18th century for a, a, a leader to do. And he's saying as he goes what he fears. And he talks about all obstructions to the executions of law constitute threats to 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 everything he's built. And then there's that famous line about cunning, ambitious and unprincipled men will be uh, enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. And she writes, uh, in this case, defendant is charged with attempting to usurp the reins of government as Washington forewarned. And so uh, it's not gratuitous. This, these are the stakes. And um, if you make him immune, uh, we're, we're done for. And so I, I thought that was uh, very powerful. All right, Mary Lou, what do you question do you have for us? Hey, everybody. Um, so I should just let everybody know that I'm Devin Nunes' lawyer, if you don't recognize my name. So I just wanted to ask a question about our favorite judge, Eileen Cannon, since she doesn't seem to care about the documents case. Why does the government not bring similar charges in New Jersey for the papers that we know he improperly retained in Bedminster? People know you have to let me answer this, Ben. Yeah, no, no, you're going to let you're going to answer the question. But there's a word of explanation needed because Devin Nunes's lawyer is not, in fact, Devin Nunes's <laughs> lawyer. And since lots of people who are uh, watching this, uh, particularly on the live stream, probably don't know Devin Nunes's lawyer from in lieu of fun and other live streams uh let's uh just want to clarify that that is in fact a uh very witty pseudonym not uh in fact a professional vocation <laughs> good to know uh and i will answer this question because i have been obsessed with the bedminster uh proceedings and possibly of charges there for many months as my lawfare colleagues can testify it's my favorite angle of this case that never came to fruit i wrote like at least two or three pieces about thinking it would, and it never did. I think we actually did get an explanation why in the superseding indictment in the Mar-a-Lago case. Um, what we saw there is that the specific document that we know Trump talked about at Bedminster, which is this document talking about um, you know surveillance and, and ongoing events in a foreign country, I think Afghanistan is what most people are inferring it likely is about, that he shared with outside people. That particular document appears to have found its way back to Mar-a-Lago and that they actually did recover a copy of it from the in response to their search warrant um, when they searched it. So I think the government likely thinks there's another copy, like they made a photocopy of it or they had two copies and that was at Bedminster. We know they propelled, uh, provided us a, a um, subpoena to Bedminster that 
they had a big argument, including in front of court, about whether what the response they got was adequate uh, and tried to push additional pressure on Trump's folks to do an additional search or make additional assertions about what they had done. We don't know the exact details of that. There's often reporting, but that's what the reporting is. And also reporting is that they considered trying to get a search warrant, but ultimately decided that they couldn't. And I think this is why, because they couldn't say this document is unaccounted for because the copy they have was actually recovered from Mar-a-Lago. We didn't know this at the time of the original indictment, but it became clear in the superseding indictment. So with that, they couldn't really get the search warrant. And my guess is that they just didn't feel like they had enough of a smoking gun to actually prove this. Different from Mar-a-Lago. I mean, Mar-a-Lago, part of the reason why it's such a shocking case is because you have pretty smoking gun evidence. You have videos of people moving boxes around the day before the lawyer comes and searches them. Uh, Two rooms where the lawyer was not told they existed, right? Like pretty deliberate effort to obscure with the subpoena there. Um, And I don't think, I think just absent something that so open and shut, um, they didn't choose to bring a case there. And they would have had, if they had done it just based off of this testimony from other witnesses about having seen this document and the audio recording, we know we have of that. That's pretty compelling, but it also would have come down to like this one sharing and details that is about eyewitness testimony. My guess is it just didn't seem like it was worth the hassle for that one charge they could bring over that one instance. Um, Maybe they still will if some additional evidence manifests, but it just seems like they didn't get what they wanted from the response to the subpoena and they didn't feel like what they had had enough gravity, a combination of gravity and compelling smoking gun evidence to bring that sort of case in such a heated environment, also in a situation where the office is running on limited resources, has to pick and choose its battles a little bit. Um, so that's where I think we are on that. And sadly, I, I think it means we probably will never see a Bedminster charges, even though I, I so badly want to see one and thought for a long time we would see some. Does that sound right, Anna, Roger, Ben, do you have anything to add on that? I think that's I have nothing to add to that. I think there might be a double jeopardy problem, too. It's so close. I mean, it's part of this case. Now there would, yeah, and I agree. And like now there would be, I mean, I think you could charge it potentially separately if there were another copy or if you recover another copy there. Um, but right now, they it's so the espionage acts are so broad in terms of the conduct they cover, you very, they may very well might be concerned about that. And again, I think in a case like this, you just wouldn't want to run, you want to make everything as clean cut as you can in a politically charged case like this. Jacob, what question do you have for us? Uh, you may have already covered this, but um, what was the most significant legal aspect of the reporting you know, over the weekend about Jennifer Little, Trump's lawyer, you know, explicitly warning Trump prior to the subpoena? And uh, happy Hanukkah to all who celebrate. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, look, if you are advised, if you are specifically advised that you not not responding fully and truthfully to a subpoena uh, and completely uh, will subject you to ch- criminal jeopardy. That is uh, a very powerful potential piece of evidence that uh, you acted willfully and intentionally and knowing that it was illegal. And so there is a lot of that evidence, by the way. Um, um, and so it may be purely cumulative of other evidence, but this is this is gold stuff in the hands of prosecutors because it goes directly to the question of intent. All right. Very last question here from Charles, who had to step away, uh, but we'll ask it in his absence. If Trump is convicted in the Washington, D.C. trial regarding January 6th, may Judge Chutkin immediately remand him to custody of the Federal Bureau of Prisons? The severity of the crimes would seem to require it. While his lawyer will file appeals, his freedom after conviction, his for a crime of violence and who has already declared his intention to further lawlessness seems beyond the pale for any consideration of mercy. What do we think about that? Uh, I think 
uh, Roger, I'll turn to you on this one uh, as you are a January 6th trial person today. She would have that power, but I don't think you would ordinarily exercise it with with somebody that has, you know, shown up and is not a flight risk. And But I don't know. What do you think, Ben? I think there is vanishingly small likelihood of Trump seeing a day in prison while his appeals are still out. And uh, I actually don't have a problem with that. I think he's not a flight risk and he's not a danger to society within the meaning of the law, although he is a danger to society in a lot of other ways. And so I think the idea that he would be free on a pallet bond is commonsensical to me. And I can't imagine that Tanya Chutkin would behave any other way. But, you know, predictions are worth what you pay for them. For what it's worth, I tend to think that's right. I'd be very surprised if he's immediately sent to prison. Uh, all the other factors here, uh, uh, you know, most most people when convicted have some time to, uh, uh, you know, uh, of freedom before they have to before for a sentence, let alone while they're awaiting sentencing. Um, I think that seems unlikely here. So, uh, but you know, maybe for President Trump, we'll do something that changes that uh, in the weeks to come. We'll have to wait to find out. We will have the opportunity to talk about that further on a future episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations. Until then, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you have a good night. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter of Lawfare through our website at lawfaremedia.org slash support. You will also be able to pose questions to our panel and become part of our conversation here at Trump Trials and Tribulations by joining our Zoom webinar Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, available only to our material supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Patchahal and our audio engineer this episode was Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.